Welcome back to another episode of Our Maryland's Politics and Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Leatherberry. This week, we'll be discussing reproductive freedom with Diana Phillip, Executive Director of NARAL Pro-Choice Maryland. It's not just about abortions anymore. While the pro-choice movement and the fight for reproductive rights often centers around ensuring a woman's right to choose when, whether, and how to start a family, organizations like NARAL Pro-Choice Maryland are also fighting for gender equality by tackling issues such as paid family leave and pregnancy discrimination. The United States pro-choice movement is most often marked by the 1973 U.S. Supreme Court decision in the landmark Roe v. Wade case. While Roe v. Wade decriminalized abortion and gave women the right to privacy under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, the decision still left much of the execution to the states. In recent years, we have seen growing attempts to reverse Roe v. Wade as part of a larger movement against women's reproductive freedom and gender equality. Issues regarding affordable health care, family services, and prison reform have all broadened the core principles of pro-choice organizations like NARAL, and it's worth a discussion to learn about the ways in which these issues affect all Marylanders and their families. Here to talk with us more about reproductive freedom in Maryland is Diane Phillip. She is the executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Maryland. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Could you... um? So could you tell us more about the organization, what it really means to be fighting for reproductive freedom here in Maryland? Yes, we are a state that is proudly pro-choice. The idea that I think that folks keep focusing on the right to abortion care and that somehow is the guidance of how pro-choice the state is. And it's true in 1992 that the state legislature and through referendum was able to codify Roe v. Wade in the state of Maryland, meaning if Roe v. Wade should fall in the Supreme Court in the state of Maryland, you could still access abortion care. It would not be illegal. But not a lot has happened since 1992 because when you look at our, our, our laws in the books, we look really good in supporting reproductive rights. But access is the problem here. And so in looking at the way that we evolved as an affiliate, we are an affiliate of a national organization, NERA Pro-Choice America. And every state affiliate has its own issues, its own challenges. Many of the other affiliates are considered states where there's conservative legislators who work every day to try to restrict access to basic reproductive health care, including abortion care. In those states that we don't have that fight every day, like Maryland, we really focus on how can we increase access to care, because that's the biggest barrier that we find in the state. We look good on the books, but when it comes to access to care, that's a different issue. So we're just not about abortion. In fact, there are times where I feel that we need to have a t-shirt that says, Maryland NARAL, not just about abortion anymore. Because we're about reproductive freedom, and that encompasses the right to choose if, when, and how we form our families. And when we do so, we parent in dignity, in health, and in safety. And that's reproductive freedom. Reproductive health, rights, and justice are all encompassing under that. On a state level, are there any other sort of issues that you all follow? I know um, the National Organization has been looking at sexual harassment issues, safety issues, domestic violence issues. Do you all touch any of that here? The uh, the four core issues that the national office and each of the affiliates 
are um, asked to address are access to abortion care, access to birth control, pregnancy discrimination, and paid leave. So those are, as this movement has evolved since the organization, the national organization was formed in 1969. Remember, this is before Roe. And they were called the National Association to Repeal Abortion Laws. And then after Roe v. Wade, they became the National Association and you know, the National Abortion Rights Action League. And in the 90s, they decided to reframe themselves and become the National Abortion Reproductive Rights Action League. And then in 2004, they chose that NARAL doesn't mean anything. It's like haagen And they added the pro-choice and then place your state. And there you got the title. So that allows all of us to evolve and realize our potential about what it means to be the only statewide political arm of the movement. And so when we look at the issues in Maryland, again, it's about access. And a couple of years ago, we did a listening tour around the state. We did a membership survey. And we found out what, um, what were the problems that people were facing. And some of it aligns with what National is interested in, but most of it doesn't because Maryland is just really that different. We have the ability to be proactive. We have the ability to be progressive. So although we um, were great proponents for paid sick and safe leave, and we're very happy that's passed, we want to see fair scheduling. So it's just not leave, you know, it's fair scheduling. It's um, the ability to have simple accommodations when you're pregnant, not because your pregnancy is complicated, but just being able to have a chair so you can sit down and do your job and have someone push you into paid or unpaid leave or push you out of your job. There's all these other facets too. It's not just about paid leave. Oh, we're done. No, there's so many other nuances of it. And as a state, we, we have the ability to really address the real needs of people that are on the ground that are facing those barriers to just simple work life and economic security and the right to form and take care of their families. And I know some listeners are probably thinking, I've never heard of the term pregnancy discrimination. <laughs> I've never, you know, people have heard about paid family leave. Mm -hmm. um, it was a big issue in the legislature in Maryland last year. Could you expand on that a little bit. I know I'm curious about it. <laughs> I, I think that people don't understand a lot about if you're trying to form your family or take care of your, your basic family planning needs, you need to be able to, in the workplace, have leave in order to go to your preventative health care appointments, go and talk to somebody if you're thinking about adoption, if you're thinking about bringing in somebody for foster care. Reproductive technology is a big issue, especially for people who find barriers in um, in being able to you know, bear your own children, there's a bunch of appointments that you have to make within you know, physicians and analysts and such. And that affects everybody's ability. If you don't have that leave, if you don't have that, that opportunity to earn enough and be compensated enough to form your family, you're going to be less likely to want to, to add to the family that you already have. Or if you are being complicated by uh, an issue where you're not able to know, carry a pregnancy to term, you have to use reproductive technology or perhaps a surrogate. That is, is more time intensive and there's more of an economic barrier for folks. We need to figure out the best way for people to have their families. And part of that is childcare access, which is a reproductive justice issue. And people don't get that. They don't understand that you're not able to take care of their families or even to grow their families if they don't have adequate childcare. Um, and it blows me away that people just don't see that as something that's part of reproductive freedom, be able to take care of your children. And, and that's, that's, a, that's very basic, is the ability to parent with dignity. I know you 
mentioned a lot of things that you all focus on. Um, in the state of Maryland, were there any big wins or losses for you guys this past session? Yeah, this past session was really good. We, um, we there's like five bills that we were really advocating for. We we're tracking 77 that we thought were reproductive health rights and justice. And if, if you know anything about our organization, you know that we have a staff of two, me and one other person, and then a team of interns or policy research interns. So tracking 77 bills for a small nonprofit like us can be tough. But when you look at the scope of every aspect about supporting pregnant and parenting individuals, having access to family planning, being able to take care of the families that we have. It all really makes a lot of sense. This is all on our website. If you want to take a look at it, you can see the 77 bills that we tracked. You can see all the written testimony that we submitted. And this, this time, these five bills that we really worked really hard on, I'll talk about um, the ones that didn't go so well and that were kind of a surprise for us. We were the first in the nation to introduce a bill that would mandate that every public college campus would provide 24-7 access to over-the-counter emergency contraception. And emergency contraception, you probably might know by the brand name of Plan B. It's the idea of taking a hormone that will suppress ovulation and stop a pregnancy from happening. And now that we can buy it on the shelf at the pharmacy, people are like, oh, we have access everywhere. And that's not true. It's not true for a college student who can't afford 50 bucks to pay for, you know, plan B or go to a pharmacy that's not open in the middle of the night or might be located seven miles away from your campus and you're a freshman and you don't have a car. The other issue is that in, on your college campus where you might have a student health center, not all of them will carry emergency contraception. And for some of them that do, they may mandate an appointment, which may take you three days to actually get, and another $75 for that appointment, thank you, and an additional $25 for the EC. So we're trying to build this movement, and we were the first in the nation to put in this bill. Last year, it, it didn't get out of committee. This year, it did not get out of committee again. It wasn't seen as a priority. The other contraceptive bills that passed were seen as more of a priority. We were told that next year will be our year. If we pass this, we'll be the first in the nation to do so. So that, that was kind of a, a sad law. Um, our pregnancy accommodation for workers bill also failed in economic matters last year. And it's a simple idea of this accommodation for people that if they're pregnant and they're further along in their pregnancies, to be able for them to continue doing their jobs without question, but also the right to, after you've given birth, to be able to have some simple accommodations, perhaps a, a break space or a time to pump, you know, and experience expressing milk and storing milk is very important for people because they feel that that's nurturing their children. They're at work, at least that they can do is make sure that their children have the nutrition that they need when they come back from work to take care of their families. So we were disappointed that bill didn't pass. Now there's a, a coalition we just convened a couple of years ago called Reproductive Justice Inside. And we're looking at the sexual and reproductive health care outcomes of inmates and detainees in any facility in the state of Maryland. So that's the one state prison that takes care of women. They have up, um, on average, 850 women at a time. It can house up to 1,100. All the county jails, the local detention centers, even those used for ICE violations, juvenile services for our young females. Those are the facilities that we wanted to look at what could we do to improve their sexual and reproductive health care. So we started looking at policies and in forming this coalition, we partnered with the University of Baltimore School of Law and they did an assessment of what written policies are in place for pregnancy-related care. And that's what we concentrated on was what the policies were because we figured if people knew what 
to expect in terms of medical care and services, maybe they could advocate for themselves. Maybe we could hold people accountable for the health care they were not getting. So there are three policies that we concentrated on. One um, you probably have heard a lot about was the menstrual hygiene product bill, the idea that if you are in the care, custody, control of the state of Maryland, you should have access, adequate access, free, accessible by request, by routine, to menstrual hygiene products. Very simple. Law goes in effect October 1st. You won't believe the horror stories. Um, I could tell you about what it's like for women to bleed through the uniforms and not be able to do the things that they're supposed to be doing while they're incarcerated or detained. The second policy was working in conjunction with another coalition, the Prisoner Rights Coalition, that looks at conditions of confinement. And what we're trying to do is prohibit solitary confinement being used on vulnerable populations. And pregnant and newly um, parenting individuals, postpartum or post-pregnant individuals, we included in that vulnerable population. Unfortunately, that bill died in committee, but we are hopeful we can do that again because it is really a terrible practice to put pregnant women in their third trimester in solitary confinement. And after they give birth and give up their babies, put them back in solitary confinement during the postpartum period when depression is the worst. But we had another big win. The menstrual hygiene product bill, we also had another big win, and is the first law of its kind in the United States. We're very proud of it, saying that every facility in the state of Maryland for corrections and detention purposes has to have a written policy for pregnancy-related medical care and services. This includes the pregnancy test at the time of intake, pregnancy options counseling, pregnancy um, testing, your prenatal testing, your prenatal care, miscarriage management, management for high-risk pregnancies, access to abortion care, labor and delivery, postpartum care, the use of mechanical restraints, and the right to use a breast pump and to store your milk. So by October 1st, every facility in the state of Maryland has to have this in writing. And what we learned from the University of Baltimore School of Law, their family law clinic, they found that none of the facilities have any of these in writing. They might have one or two, but that's about it. So we look forward to working with our facilities across the state in order to try to improve the outcomes. And one of the best things about this law is that if someone has a positive pregnancy test, they shall be handed that written policy of that facility so they know exactly where they stand. So we can improve the health outcomes of not only those that are trying to maintain their fertility and making choices about family planning, but those that choose to carry to term, making sure that their infants have a good outcomes as well. You had some wins and some losses, but hopefully <laughs> next year we can get some other things going. Um, I do want to say one more thing about yeah. the shackling. In 2014, we did pass a prohibition against shackling in the third trimester. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. um, there was only a reporting requirement that facilities had to say annually how many times they decide to use restraints on individuals that were pregnant and not a monitoring component. And we believe now after three years of looking at the reports and the outreach we've done through our coalition that we need to revisit that statute and have a monitoring component. It's one of the reasons why we asked for the use of restraints policy is that we want to stop that practice. Really briefly, I know on a national level, there's been a lot of news about the gag rule. Um, could you talk a little bit about how that may affect Maryland? I think nationally everyone's very concerned about the idea that this is just not family planning clinics we're talking about. We're talking about Department of Health clinics, um, private providers that may have a contract in which they might receive some kind of federal funding when they go to, to, to volunteer or do some contract work, that they're not able to talk about 
abortion care being an option. They can't talk about it. They can't refer a patient to seek that abortion care. And this is, you know, I think a lot of people, if you know anything about these issues, you're familiar with a global gag rule. And now we're talking about a domestic one in which you will lose Title X funding or your Medicaid reimbursement through the federal government, your matches. And that would be an incredible detriment that anything that the patient is hearing is everything about carrying a term and nothing about the idea that it may not be in your best interest to not carry a term. There's... It's interesting when you look at the anti-choice crisis pregnancy centers that in which some of the states do have public funding through their state legislatures, that they are adamant about talking about all the risk of abortion care, but will not talk about the risk about giving birth. They will not talk about what it's like to actually, um, where it's 20 times more um, difficult medically, there can be more complications than seeking an abortion for you to choose to carry a term. And we want, st we have states that want to fund those guys that won't talk about the comprehensive options for sexual reproductive health care. Um, but instead, they want to strip the funding away from people who want to talk about comprehensive health care that's inclusive of abortion care. So this is going to be a problem. We're going to have more patients that are going to have more complicated pregnancies. And if you are seeking services that are covered through Medicaid, the way that it is set up right now, uh, we know that if we give people prenatal care and access to safe abortion care, then we're not, the state's not paying for complicated pregnancies. We're not paying for the increase in maternal and infant mortality rates is what's going to happen out of this. And it's going to cost the state more. It's going to cost families more on a personal level that we can't even imagine. So this gag rule is really offensive. And I think a lot of people are quite terrified of the idea that we have a an administration, the Trump-Pence administration, that thinks this is the way our world should be. Thank you for all of the information about your organization, and um, I know some of our listeners are probably feeling pretty empowered right now. <laughs> um, so could you tell us a little bit about um, how you all engage and mobilize folks to get involved and just why it's so important to join this fight? We, we have certain campaigns where that we'll be we reach out to the public for to volunteer, and sometimes it's a matter of putting on public forums for people to know more about our issues. Sometimes it's asking for you know for funding in order to support an organizer to go on college campuses and find out you know what the youth need there. Um, so we we have certain campaigns, and those campaigns allow people to choose you know what is really dear to them, like um, looking at school-based health centers and high schools and offering comprehensive health care, looking at the colleges and their wellness health centers and how they're reacting and addressing sexual assault matters and how is that inclusive to sexual reproductive health care, looking at incarcerated detained individuals if that's something that people are interested in. We're doing more public forums. We're still collecting donations of maxi pads. We're, um, there's just certain things that you can do, but I think that one of the most important things we can do right now is go into local communities around the state of Maryland and have public forums and sit down and talk to people about what is most basic in their communities so then when we go back to the legislature, we know that we are representing everyone's best interests. So we've got you know, our social media, <clears throat> so you can keep track of what we do. You can join as a member, which is $40 a year. It's um, $10 if you're a senior, $10 if you're a student, a year, just to get our alerts, just to find out what we're doing. And I, I think 
for everybody, after the Trump uh, Pence administration, a lot of folks came to me and said, I don't know what to do, I'm so overwhelmed. I said, really, the thing that, and I've been pretty consistent on this message, you have to pick two things that you know that you'll be committed to. I know that there's many, many issues out there that people are, are really upset about and want to be involved. But what we need people to do is step up and be there. So it's great for you to sign a petition. It's great to go online and learn more about the issues. But pick two issues and just choose the one thing that you think you can do and then show up. And that's what we can ask. So, you know, perhaps it's, um, you know, perhaps it's co-sponsoring public forum. Perhaps it's putting on a maxi pad donation drive because we're going to still be dropping off pads everywhere until October 1st. You know, something that you know you can follow through on, but that is really meaningful to you. And um, do you have your website and social media, ways that people can follow you guys? Yeah, so our, our website is www.prochoicemd, as in Maryland, .org. And then the same thing with Facebook, it's NARAL Pro Choice Maryland. And I believe we're on Twitter as well. Great. Um, well, thank you so much for the information. Um, hopefully we can get some people out and fighting the good fight. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. For more information on membership and getting involved with NARAL Pro-Choice Maryland, visit their website at www.prochoicemd.org. As always, thanks for listening to the Our Maryland Politics and Policy Podcast. See you next time.